Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome former Labor MP Kate Ellis to Books, Books, Books to discuss her fabulous new book, Sex, Lies and Question Time, published by Hardy Grant earlier this year. Kate Ellis represented Adelaide in the Australian House of Representatives for Labor from 2004 until 2019. She served as minister in multiple portfolios in the 2007 to 2013 federal Labor government. And in fact, in 2007, when Kevin Rudd appointed her as Minister for Youth and Sport, she became Australia's youngest ever minister at the age of 30. She then spent time in shadow cabinet until she left Parliament at the 2019 federal election. Sex, Lies and Question Time is Kate's first book. Kate, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Kate, you were 27 when you were first elected to Parliament and you spent 15 years there from 2004 to 2019. Had you always wanted to go into politics from when you were young? I didn't really ever imagine myself as a Member of Parliament. Even a year before I was elected, I had never honestly considered that as an option. Um, I think I saw myself as someone interested in politics and who wanted to work to support members of parliament, but I probably hadn't really imagined that that was a possibility for me until it all came about very rapidly and um, and there I found myself in Canberra. Kate, were there any women who had been politicians before you who you looked up to um, or who inspired you in your decision to go into politics? I think I'm pretty lucky coming from South Australia. We have a real history when it comes to, I guess, being at the forefront of um, women in politics, whether that's, you know, the first to give women the vote um, or have young women. Obviously, it was a few years before me, Natasha Stockdespoyer was elected in South Australia, which, you know, I think that everyone who doesn't quite fit the mould and paves a bit of a path makes it easier for the people that come after them. And there's no doubt that I would have benefited from that. After university, you went straight into politics. You worked or you volunteered for a number of Labor politicians. And then after you'd been a Labor staffer for a few years, somebody suggested you should run yourself. You did in 2004 and you were successful. On your first day in Parliament, a reporter asked you the following question. Do you worry that you might suffer from the Natasha complex, the young, attractive, smart, savvy kind of girl coming to Parliament and being depicted as just that? How did it feel to be asked that question on your first day in Parliament? I think that um, that was just one example of many reminders that were given to me that it was unusual for me to be there. Um, and I had so many of them. Um, you know, there are examples from um, security guards telling me not to use the MP's entrance, that the staff entrance is over there, um, 
to comcar drivers when i'd get in they'd sit and wait and eventually say when's your boss getting here and um, it was con- it was a constant reminder to me that i didn't fit the norm and that it was different me being there and i guess i just got used to that i mean i have no doubt that that had its own impact but like my first radio interview when i was first pre-selected i went into the studio i was very excited and the announcer gave this very long introduction saying in one of the most extraordinary things he'd ever seen in federal politics labor had pre-selected 26-year-old unknown Kate Ellis for a winnable seat and he then went on to list all of the things that i wasn't born for he was Kate wasn't born when the Whitlam government was dismissed she wasn't born when a man landed on the moon she wasn't born you know he went on and on about how um um it was extraordinary because of my age and i guess that just always reinforces or to me it to certainly reinforced that i felt like i had to work harder um just to get to the same starting line to be accepted that it wasn't the most ridiculous thing in the world that i might be in in federal parliament is something i felt like i had to work really hard to establish where lots of people just go and get elected and um you know it's just accepted that they should be there um you know maybe some of that is me but i definitely felt that constantly a few weeks after you had entered parliament you were out at drinks and a liberal staffer said to you the only thing anyone really wants to know about you kate swear word warning here how many blokes you had to fuck to get into parliament were you surprised to hear a comment like that i was really surprised actually in part because um it it was a social gathering that people were standing around having a joke and a laugh it wasn't we weren't debating you know our politics we weren't getting into policy discussions i was having a nice time with some liberal staffers when he sort of came in and it was jarring to me not just what he said um but the fact that you'd think that that's something you'd say in a social setting um surrounded by other people uh it 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 did surprise me but i remember just kind of laughing thinking this bloke doesn't seem like very much fun um, like he was really quite aggressive and super confident in even putting that forward but you know i i i think i just i think in politics you get used pretty quickly to people having all sorts of criticisms of you people finding any weakness any way to bring you down and i did kind of think oh, well at least this guy's saying it to my face um there's something in that because there's no doubt there would have been many many more people saying horrible things behind my back but yeah it was it was a pretty jarring moment how did you handle that did you talk to other women about these sorts of comments and this sort of behavior or did you keep it to yourself um it was funny because i actually went inside and there were some labor mp's in there and i told them what happened and tony burke was one of them he was also just elected at the 2004 election and he was quite shocked and was like i'm going to go out there and speak to him and i i had to kind of say no 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 let's just let that one slide um because yeah people were pretty surprised about it but um you know i just moved on it's not something i i really dwelled on it was only when i was writing this book that you kind of put together a whole lot of experiences that on their own hadn't seemed like that much but when you put them all together you go oh there absolutely is a pattern um of disrespect here and that's something that it it really didn't become apparent to me because i was busy focused on other things until i stopped when i left parliament and i guess looked at the 
the whole picture. When you were in politics, you say in your book that you routinely refused invitations to talk about what it was like to be a woman in politics because you thought what you were there for was to do your job, to focus on the people who had elected you. Did you ever think that when you left politics, you might write a book about your experiences, giving an insider's (laughs) perspective? No, I didn't. In fact, um, I never thought this book would come about. When I was first approached um, by my publisher, Arwen Summers at Hardy Grant, when I announced that I wasn't running, and one of my assistants politely go back and say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Kate says she doesn't have anything more to say. And then she approached me again, and I was like, yeah, no, I don't think so. And it was only because she um, was so persistent that once I'd then left politics and I started thinking there is no way I was ever going to write a book about myself. Um, I just thought, you know, that's something you do if you're a former prime minister maybe, but um, I just wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But then when I stopped and thought maybe there is a story, a broader story about women's experiences across the board, And I thought, well, I'm probably well-placed to try and capture those stories because I have relationships with all of those women that maybe they'll sit down and talk to me and maybe we can have something that's a bit unique, like a really honest insight into what it's like to be a woman in parliament. And then I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And, um, yeah, and here we are. You spoke to women across the political spectrum about the issues that women faced in, in parliament. Who were some of the people that you spoke to and were they keen to share their experiences? Well, I spoke to 16 different women. So the first interview I did, just the way it turned out, was with Pauline Hanson, um, who I'd never had a conversation with before. And I was quite, um, I I don't know that terrified is the right word, but I didn't really know how that was going to go. And... um, so I started with Pauline Hanson, but spoke to Sarah Hanson Young, Julia Gillard, Julie Bishop, um, a number of uh, sitting MPs from Tanya Plibersek, Penny Wong, Karen Andrews, Susan Lay. And there was a real variety in how open people were. Some people were really um, ready to share their story. Sometimes it felt like a bit of a therapy session that we were both in um, sitting, sharing our experiences and um, because it's something that in my experience we didn't really talk about in the parliament. Um, And then some of them were more guarded. There was definitely um, particularly government ministers who are serving government ministers seemed a lot more guarded when I interviewed them. Then, of course, by the time the book came out, the whole landscape had changed. The focus on um, women in Parliament House had changed so much that a lot of them are speaking a lot more openly now. That's something that you talk about in the book. You say that you felt like you were breaking some unspoken code of not acknowledging the sexist and unfair treatment of women. Tell us about that code. I just think, like, more than anything when it comes to politics, um, well, almost more than anything, I want to see more women um, in Parliament. And I also, um, you know, I haven't written this book because I'm bitter. Um, I absolutely loved my experience as a Member of Parliament. It's such a privilege that I will always be grateful for. So I think people are a bit torn. Um, You don't want to discourage um, other women and young women from thinking about it as a possible career option. Um, So you don't really want to Um, give light to, I guess, the more negative sides of the job or the experience. 
And, you know, as I, I think I said in the book, it's it's a bit like that old thing that you don't tell women about childbirth, the, the realities of childbirth until they've had children themselves. And then women love sharing the gory details of their, of their birth. Um, I think it's a similar thing that there's this kind of unspoken code that you don't talk about the bad things about being a woman in politics. Um, so I was really torn about that. And it's probably the thing that I was most torn about the entire time I was writing the book. I was so, really trying to keep a balance. So what got you over the line? You, you said in the book, you really, I imagine this is this is the aim of the book. You say, I want it to be called out and I want it to stop. Hmm. What got you over the line? I can see the hesitancy that you might have had about not wanting to put other young women off from a career in politics. What was it that tipped you over the line and persuaded you that writing this book would be a good thing? I think it's um, having a bit of space, being out of politics and I guess engaging with normal Australia. I had a, a broader perspective and it struck me that I hadn't realised at the time how far behind the culture is in in federal politics when it comes to women. And once I was out and I had a chance to reflect on some of my experiences, I realised that there's some quite shocking things that happen and are just seen as a matter of course. And so once I was out, I realised that's actually really not okay and it's not changing um, or it's not changing quickly enough and it's not going to change unless someone actually calls it out um, more broadly. So I, I think it's. I, I think if I was still in Parliament, I probably wouldn't realise just how far behind the rest of Australia, the culture of Australian politics can be. You talk about that, about the fact that in, um, in Parliament House, it's like this bad behaviour is, is almost normalised and that it's not until you, you left and you got a perspective that you realised that it wasn't. After the 2019 election, 30% of the seats in the House of Representatives were held by women. More disturbingly, in 2017, you refer to a survey of young women aged 18 to 25 that showed that 0% of them would consider entering politics. Why do you think that is? Why is that figure so bad, the latter one particularly? Well, I think we've seen a series. I mean, first of all, we saw Julia Gillard's experience as Australia's first female Prime Minister and I think um, people saw how harsh it can be, how unfair it can be, and how different women can be treated there. But we've also had some really high-profile um, cases in the last few years. Um, Sarah Hanson-Young actually having a court case about being, as she termed it, slut-shamed in the federal parliament. Emma Hassar going on national television saying that that ended her career. I, th I think the genie was let out of the bottle a, a little bit and these practices that had probably gone on for as long as there's been women in our parliament um, became a bit more public and impacted people's views of that. Um, so my only hope is that, you know, looking at those survey results and young women saying they just wouldn't even consider a career in politics. I mean, I'm an optimist, but I do feel like the events of the last year have changed it a bit from that's horrible and I don't want to go in there to it's horrible and I need to go in there. Um, I think that there are women who are more determined and realise that we actually really need women to step up to the plate. You make the point as uh, in your book, as you just have, that in the private sector there have been huge advances 
probably not enough or not enough in terms of equality, gender equality, but the culture in parliament is peculiarly and very aggressively male. You described as an outdated, toxic and often unfair environment. Why do you think the culture is so toxic and so male in parliament when things have improved in other workplaces? I think there's many reasons for that. I think one is just the way that our parliament was established, the rules of how it's played, what's rewarded, what's seen as success um, are all very, it's kind of, it is a very aggressive environment. Um, but I think it's also the, the type of people that politics often attracts are attracted to power, um, you know, and like to use that power. Often there's a sense of entitlement. So when you put gender politics in with those traits, um, you can see how that can become quite dangerous. Um, but I think the other thing is that the, the private sector has been forced to make change and, you know, as a matter of course, will do training for their staff on respect, on bullying, on appropriate workplace behaviours. Parliament hasn't done any of that. Um, in terms of professional development or training, I think a lot of people feel like I've been elected by the Australian community, therefore I'm untouchable and I can do what I like. And Is that partly, do you think, that? just because of that, those statistics that only, for example, 30% of the seats in the House of Reps are held by women, is it, is it the fact that there hasn't been a critical mass of women to um, agitate for these changes? I think that's a large part of it. Um, I do think that an increased number of women in the parliament changes the culture and changes it pretty quickly, which is something I got to see firsthand during my 15 years there. Um, so that's a part of it. But I, I think it's broader than that. I, <clears throat> I'm probably becoming more radical in my thinking on this um, as time goes on because I, I think there is a problem which we're seeing played out now where MPs can behave badly, can be caught behaving badly, but they may be in a marginal seat, they may hold a vote that the government desperately needs. So there aren't consequences and there's certainly not a zero tolerance approach to it. Um, people turn a blind eye because it's all about numbers on the floor and that's unhealthy. You also talk about the double standards that are applied to men and women. Could you give us some examples of those? Uh, I think um, there's a huge amount of double standards when it comes to personal lives. Um, for example, women are routinely um, sexual allegations or gossip about their um, personal lives is used as a way to undermine their credibility whereas I think a blind eye is largely turned to men and what they might actually be doing. Um, but also just parenthood is a huge, you know, we see all the time and we still see it constantly that if a woman is elevated to a senior position, it will be publicly asked, well, how can she do this when she's got young children? Who's looking after the kids? Um, those questions are never asked of men in our parliament at all. And you know, so there's a lot of judgments that are placed on women and the decisions that they make that aren't placed on men. But I, I think the other one that is really obvious is um, the focus on physical appearance of women. Um, that's seen as fair game in um, discussion, debate and critique of 
that woman's suitability to be in parliament in a way that it just isn't the same for men. Let's talk about that for a moment. Okay. When you were first pre-selected, a Labor colleague gave you some advice about your appearance. What was mm. that? Well, I was um, I was told I should uh, cut my hair. I was told I should um, wear more sensible shoes. Uh, it was recommended to me a, um, a clothing salon that I might like to visit, which is a salon here in Adelaide, which I would say is really catered for the older woman. You were 27 um, at the time. Uh, yeah. Well, I was 26 when I got this advice when I was first the candidate. Um, but it got to the point of, um, did I need glasses? And I said, no, I've got perfect vision. And it was suggested maybe I get some glasses just with straight glass. Um, and it was really clear that it was about trying to make me fit some sort of mould of what was appropriate for a female Member of Parliament to look like or make me less feminine or certainly make me not look so young. And I found it really confronting because it was already confronting, um, you know, putting your hand up publicly for a marginal seat, in my case the capital city seat, and um, to do that whilst also trying to pretend to be something you're not or cover up who you are or what your age was, it, it just um, was. Too, it just would have been too hard. But I, I found it really confusing. I was like, why would you pre-select me if you want someone completely different? Because I, I can't be authentic in talking to my community, trying to make connections if I'm also trying desperately to pretend that I'm somebody that I'm not. Something I thought was very interesting is that you say in the book, when you interviewed these 16 women MPs, this was the single biggest issue that they mentioned. And you make the point that women can't win. If they do dress well, they're shallow or vacuous or show ponies. And if they don't, they're criticised. Why do you think there is this obsession in the media, particularly with the appearance of women politicians? Well, the only thing I can think is that we're still seen as a bit of a novelty um, men in our parliaments have largely looked the same since Federation. They've largely um, been middle-aged white men in grey suits and um, so there's nothing really to focus on there, whereas women are a bit of a novelty that, you know, they've got long hair, they've got short hair, she's got high heels, she's got flats, she wears skirts, she doesn't, um, she wears bright colours or big earrings or um, I, I think it's just been seen as something a bit different and particularly for the media when they're desperately looking for a way to make politics interesting to the broader community. Um, I can see how they've kind of latched onto that at times. Um, so I, I definitely think that the more women in our parliament, the less the focus will be on that. And I've also seen that in my time. I remember in my last couple of terms in the parliament, I'd see women um, confidently stride into the chamber in outfits that I was like, oh, my God, if I'd worn that 10 years ago, it would have been big national news. But it is changing and it's becoming more flexible. And I think that's a really good thing. There was a study done in the US that you talk about in 2013 called Name It, Change It. Could you tell us a bit about that study? Well, I, I think it's really interesting that um, what the study showed is that there is much more of a focus on women's personal appearances than men's. Um, but even more devastatingly, it showed that every time there was a focus on a female politician's appearance, whether it was positive or negative, um, her electability went down, less credible, less electable, 
um, every time there was a focus on their appearance, which also shows that women just can't win. Um, yeah, which is which is tricky um, because it means that every time that the media is focusing on your outfits, your body shape, whatever it may be, they're not focusing on your experience, your policies, your ideas, um, what it is that you hope to do for your local community. So it, it means that there's a further obstacle that women in politics face in trying to get their message out to voters. Let's talk now about something that you devoted, Chapter 2. I'm sure you probably could have devoted a whole book to, this, <laughs> and that is slut-shaming. Hmm. So in July 2018, just to pick one particular example, Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young called out then-Senator David Leisure-Helm for his behaviour towards her in Parliament. You spoke to Sarah about this at some length. Could you describe, and most of us saw the final point of that, the comment that he made and what we saw her walk across the chamber to him, but in the book you explained that this was the culmination of six to 12 months of bad behaviour. Could you describe the behaviour that she'd been subjected to over that period? Yeah, it was it was one of the most interesting moments of the interviews that I did was when I was talking to Sarah and I'd thought that she'd... Um, just decided to stand up for herself and to call out a bloke who was behaving badly. What I hadn't realised is that this behaviour had been going on not just for weeks but for months. Every time she stood up in the parliament, she had men opposite who were shouting out the names of men that she was alleged to have slept with or shouting out things that she was alleged to have done with them or places she was alleged to have been caught um, in sexual activities. So, and Sarah explained to me that it started really impacting her. It was impacting on her ability to want to stand up and ask questions, even when there were pressing questions to be asked in her portfolio. And that is the most <clears throat> noxious part of it, isn't it? That this behaviour actually came to the point of, of um, impacting adversely on how she did her job. Well, and it was worse than that. It got to the point where she didn't want to go to question time and she wouldn't turn up or she would leave early to the point that senators on the other side of politics to her noticed this. So it was clearly something that, you know, while a lot of us saw Sarah standing up and calling him out as a sign of strength, it was that, but it was also a sheer sign of desperation. As she explained it, she just could not allow this behaviour to go on and had to try doing something about it. And, you know, I can't imagine too many workplaces in Australia where women go to work every day and publicly have that sort of um, abuse thrown at them over and over again without anyone calling it out, without anyone stepping in to protect them, without anyone making it stop and have to make a call. Do I make this public and a national story that will be debated? That's pretty embarrassing in itself. Or do I continue just sitting by and letting it um, go on? That's that's a pretty hard place to be in. So it was interesting hearing Sarah's account of that. And she, she of course, did call it out. Well, what he did, as I understand it, was he called out, why don't you stop shagging men, as she was asking a question in Parliament. She went up to him, she asked him what he said, he was rude to her, and then he was foolish enough to repeat uh, those statements uh, in the media, and she sued him successfully in mm. defamation proceedings. Do you think that's a way forward for women? I mean, it's terrible that it has had to come to that, but do you think that that is one way to stop this behaviour for for 
women to to take action in that way to assert their rights and protect their reputations? I think that publicly calling it out is essential to bringing about change. But one of the things that I hope would happen and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to try and get a recognition that it can't just be that woman who has to stand up and call it out. And the people around, the other senators, um, her colleagues or her political opponents, you know, all have a responsibility to actually stand up and call it out. And we should not leave it to, um, for lack of a better word, the victim to be the one that has to make these calls and put themselves in the spotlight. Um, And it's one of the things I'm really pleased about that I've been surprised that I've had some male MPs who have contacted me since the book came out saying things like, I've seen some behaviour go on that it's made me feel uncomfortable, but now I know that I'm actually going to have a talk to the people that are doing that and see if I can stop it. And that's a brilliant thing because that's what we need. It should not be just up to that one woman to try and change the situation. Kate, you, of course, had your own pretty horrendous experience of this slut shaming. Would you like to tell us about what happened to you? Oh, well, I had many, um, I guess, People have to pick something um, to undermine your credibility. And in my case, if you're 27 or 30 when I became a minister, you know, not married, um, one way that seemed popular was to make up sexual rumours about me. And it got to the point that they were so widely spread that I've had journalists this year say to me, oh, I heard that and I heard it so often that I just assumed it was true. So with me, it was um, that I was sleeping with my colleagues, that I was sleeping with when I was sports minister, there was rumours about um, senior sports administrators that only liked me because I was sleeping with them Um, and there were rumours about me and staff. I'm sure there were others, but um, that's just to name a few. But the one that got really out of hand was there was this mad rumour that I had a young female chief of staff who was brilliant, talented, great at her job, also young and attractive. And there was this rumour that her and I um, were both sleeping with one of the male advisors in the office. And it became so far-fetched that then the rumour said that when we both discovered what each other was up to, we sat him down and gave him an ultimatum that he had to choose one. Basically, the rumour went that we sat and begged, pick me, pick me. Um, and you know, just ridiculous. So the story was that my office was clearly so dysfunctional because there was this sordid love triangle going on in it that the Prime Minister didn't know what to do and it was destabilising the government. So it got to the point where I found out that there was going to be um, a newspaper article that was going to go out in all of the News Limited Sunday newspapers across the country about, you know, these allegations about what I'd been up to. And I was a new minister. Um, But people of Australia didn't know me outside my electorate. So I knew if that article went ahead, that would um, be what people form their opinions on. And even if, you know, it was said it was just a rumour, even if later people came out and acknowledged that it wasn't true, I still to this day believe that that would have been career ending for me. That is almost the most frightening thing that you... You believed, and you know, it was a rational belief at the time that that would be that would be the end of your career—a baseless, completely mm. baseless rumor. 
of that nature would, would be the end of your political career. I think that was one of the things I found the most disturbing in the whole book. Tell us how, how you dealt well, with it. Oh, well, um, I was lucky in that um, the journalist never came to me, but I got a tip-off from someone who he'd contacted um, when working on this story who um, let me know that it was coming. So I, I madly just did everything I could to try and stop the publication of it. And I was really lucky that I went to the Prime Minister's office and convinced um, his senior staff that this would be devastating for me, that it was really unfair and that we needed to stop it. And um, so they went to work as well and got in touch with editors and um, worked to kill off this story, which luckily we did kill off. But the um, the deal was that I would need to personally speak um, to one of the newspaper editors to assure him that there was no truth in this. And it just, particularly in hindsight, I think back now on being a federal minister mm. of Australia on the phone to a newspaper editor I've never met before, um, pleading with him. And, you know, as I think I said in the book, I still cringe when I, I can hear my voice saying to him, honestly, I've never even kissed him. <laughs> like, how ridiculous is that? It, that is, it's like high school. Um, it's not like any sort of modern workplace and certainly not what, um, you know, the federal parliament that's meant to be setting the standards should be focused on and women should be having to deal with when we're trying to do our jobs. But I dodged a bullet. Not everyone has. Let's talk now about social media. Mm -hmm. Men and women, both of them in public life, are all faced with social media trolling. But why is it that it's so much worse and so much more toxic for women? Well, I think all of the evidence um, and the academic research has shown that women do regularly receive much higher levels of abuse um, and threats on social media than men generally. Um, but I think when you add to that in politics, you know, half the community doesn't like you before you even open your mouth. Um, they don't like what you stand for. They don't want you to win. They don't want you to be successful. And um, so what that means is on social media for women, you know, there is a, a vicious um, sort of feedback that you get each and every day. And, you know, from women I spoke to, it's not uncommon for that to include um, threats of violence, threats of rape, um, you know, critique about um, your body, what you look like, um, and and just really harsh personal feedback which, I mean, the reason that this is such a problem is the most senior women that I spoke to, and, and particularly Julia Gillard and Penny Wong, both said to me they were so lucky that when they were starting out, they weren't subjected um, to that sort of feedback. But they were both saying... Is that because social, social media wasn't as advanced it's, then? Yeah, that's right. So social media wasn't as advanced there. But they both said what sort of impact would that have on the confidence of the women who are just trying to find their feet, just trying to settle into their jobs? And any time that you do anything publicly, you get this sort of level of abuse and threats. Um, it, it, it would have an impact and it's a disproportionate impact that women in politics are bearing than men. And one of the examples um, I gave was a story Amanda Rishworth told where she was sitting in Parliament and her male colleague said, oh, my God, I've just been called a hypocrite on social media. And she said, mate, and kind of opened up her phone and I think there was one that said, you know, you're, you're just like that red-headed slut um, or something. That, and he 
there was just no awareness um, from him that this is something we deal with all the time. So and how do you deal with it? How do you handle it? Do you talk to each other about it? Do you laugh it off? I think that there's a number of different approaches. Some women have said they've just got off social media. They let their staff um, deal with the feedback and they might send some messages out. But the flip side of that is as a politician, part of your job is receiving feedback from the community. And sometimes that's really constructive. Sometimes there's really valid points um, about the policy you're you're advocating or about the debate at the time. So it's hard to just say you're going to step out of that space. But I think it's also about awareness. You you need to realise that those voices aren't necessarily at all reflective of the broader community, um, which, which was my experience. I think I told the story that I used to take it to heart. I used to think, oh, yes, they're right. I have to do better. I have to work harder. I have to win them over. And I had this light bulb moment that sounds so ridiculous, but um, I was going through feedback after I'd been on Q&A and somebody had written, oh, that Kate Ellis, she just sits there with all her Botox and her hair extensions. And you know, if they'd been saying she's a stupid bimbo, she's embarrassing, um, then I might go, oh, yeah, maybe they've got a point. But because it was so black and white that I know full well that I don't have Botox or hair extensions, there was this moment where I just realised, oh, they just make up stuff to try and be mean. And it sounds crazy that you have to have that example. But I think that maybe women more than men have a tendency um, to kind of dismiss positive criticism and take the negative criticism to heart and dwell on it and believe it. And I certainly suffered from that. And that moment just set me free. I was just going to say, I think that you connect that in your book to the uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. That yeah. Women absolutely. seem to suffer disproportionately uh, from men, that it reinforces your own belief that you're not good enough. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think that we don't really have an answer um, to the question about social media. It is something um, that we're going to have to work out how people in public life mm. in particular deal with and how women in politics deal with mm. um, because it is disproportionately impacting them. And it can also be really dangerous that we also know that violence online can lead to real-life violence or at least the threats of. So if that impacts on the way you do your job, can you go down to the local park and tell all the residents that they can come and have a face-to-face conversation How do you feel confident doing that if every day you're receiving violent threats online and you don't know who they're from? Um, There there are still unanswered questions about social media that I think we really need to focus on. I'd like to talk now about Julia Gillard. You spend some time, I think, a chapter in your book and talking about her experience as Australia's first female prime minister, and I know that you spoke to her. There was, as you say, a tremendous focus on her appearance and there was just so much hatred, so much misogyny. It seemed that she became a lightning rod for the very worst kind of sexist behaviour from Australian politicians, media and the community. You ask yourself in this book and you say that many of your female colleagues have asked yourselves, should you have done more either to be calling out sexist misogynistic behaviour earlier before she became Prime Minister or then when she actually was Prime Minister, should you have been calling it out more? Should you have been jumping to her defence more? At the time, you say that what you believed was that the the best way to deal with sexist behaviour and misogynist behaviour was just to to work hard and to do a good job. And that was the approach that Julia took as well. 
in hindsight, what do you think about that approach? Do you think now that do you and your female colleagues think that you you could or perhaps should have done more to call out the dreadful conduct that was directed at Julia Gillard? Yeah, I definitely think that I think Australia needed to do more to call it out. Um, it was hard. It was hard for Julia because she wanted to be focusing on her policy achievements. It was hard for us because we didn't want to be taking attention away from the government's agenda. Um, and also because, you know, every time she or any of us stood up, we were accused of playing the gender card. Um, we were labelled as the handbag hit squad because, you know, many of us would stand up and try and call it out. And I think that what we've learned is that we we actually, I think, have an increased awareness now of what Julia was dealing with and what um, women in public life have been dealing with. The only way is we need business leaders standing up and calling it out. We need our media organisations actually not just calling it out but ensuring there are consequences for um, for people who are engaging in that sort of sexist attacks. Um, you know, we need community leaders, we need politicians from across the aisle actually saying this isn't okay and we're going to set a higher standard. And I think one of the problems we had when Julia was Prime Minister was I think a lot of us were actually shocked by the level of misogyny. It was brutal and it was constant and it was multifaceted. You know, it was coming from different levels from, you know, in the parliament, in the media, but also in the community, mm. in um, in like, you know, those awful online hate that was um, spewing up. So I think a lot of us would were caught off guard that we just didn't realise that there was that level um, within Australia. And now we're more aware and I think a lot of people have reflected upon it and I think a lot of people from all sides of politics um, have reflected upon it. I did have an interesting thought um, a few weeks ago. I mean, obviously we've seen um, one of my former South Australian colleagues, the member for Boothby, Nicole Flint, has said she won't run at the next election and she's called out the level of sexism towards women in politics. But I went back and noted that before she was elected, she was writing newspaper columns about Julia Gillard's handbag hit squad. And I do wonder whether, you know, people's views have moved and people's awareness of what's going on there are much more advanced now than they were when Julia was Prime Minister. You also make the point in, in your book that the way that it was done, what what seemed to be particularly evil about it in a lot of cases was that Tony Abbott got his women um, mm. ministers, oh, he, sorry, Tony Abbott got the women politicians to be the most critical of Julia Gillard as another woman, and that seemed to me to be a particularly toxic tactic. Yeah. Well, it it changed the dynamics of the parliament as well that I think a lot of women outside politics say, if it's so bad for all the women in there, why can't they all just get together and um, call on it to stop? But actually what's happened is that women's relationships with women um, have gotten worse. And um, certainly during the Tony Abbott, Julia Gillard days, where it was women who were standing up and asking the questions, you know, about Julia's boyfriend from 20 years earlier and um, her personal life, you know, the, the stuff that I think Tony Abbott was probably concerned he'd look like a bully if he was asking. 
Um, there was one after another, women standing up asking these questions. And it set a bit of a precedent and a tone that I, I think that still continues, that if there is a female minister who's in trouble or on the ropes, it's more likely than not that it will be a female asking the hard questions of her, um, which, you know, d- does terrible things for the dynamics between women in the parliament as well. Kate, one of my favourite chapters in the book, the most optimistic one, is entitled Is It Worth It? What's the answer? I don't think there's any doubt in the world that it's worth it. It it really is the most remarkable um, privilege to get to not just serve your community but play a role in improving our country. And there's no way you can bring about um, more change than well, I think I, I said in the book, other than maybe um, finding a cure for cancer, that in terms of the number of people you can help, the number of lives you can improve, it is a remarkable um, opportunity that um, is so incredibly rewarding. So, yeah, it was important to me to try and not just expose the bad bits, but recognise the other part of the story we don't talk about is why it's so good, um, that why it's something that people should consider. And I absolutely um, passionately believe that it's the best job that I'll ever have in my life. So it was it was good to try and tell that side as well. And almost all, I think maybe all of the other women that you interviewed felt the same way, didn't they? Absolutely. Um, so I think Emma Hassar was the only one who had some questions over whether she'd advise others to do it. But every other woman um, said without hesitation that, you know, if people know what they're in for, if people know what they're going into and they're passionate about it, like it's not a job for everyone, but if you're passionate about it and if you believe you've got a contribution to make, then absolutely go for it and know that, you know, I hope that it will become easier and easier for women in part because, you don't have to navigate this path that's never been um, walked down before. You can actually see what obstacles you're likely to encounter and you can also learn from the women that have gone before you or the women that are there now. I think there's more of a support network, there's more advice and, and um, yeah, I, I hope it will continue to be easier. On that note, let's talk now finally about Brittany Higgins and the, yes. the rape allegations that she made earlier this year. Were you surprised by those allegations? I I don't know the answer to this question, <laughs> to be honest. I know that it's a yes or no question. Um, I, I mean, I was I was shocked and I was horrified um, by the allegations. If you look at the culture in Parliament House and the level of disrespect for women and the power imbalances, um. Can I see how it is feasible that that had that that happened to her? Yes. Um, do I imagine it's probably happened to other people? Yes. Um, but the thing that I was really shocked about, to be honest, is I, I what I still can't get my head around is that even if that happens in you know in Parliament House in the ministerial wing, just meters away from the Prime Minister's office, what I can't get my head around is how in any organisation someone can hear such an allegation and not take it to the boss. Like I just can't see how, you know, any director of any company, you'd have, you'd have a board meeting, um, are there any other issues we need to discuss? You would raise an allegation of that serious nature. 
So I cannot understand how a cabinet minister cannot raise that with the prime minister and them not immediately act upon it. I just can't understand how there could be anything more important happening um, than that particular allegation. So, you know, I'm horrified to hear Brittany Higgins' allegations, but I'm also more so deeply sorry for the way that she was treated since and continuing to be treated. Um, she she is an absolute, you know, warrior when it comes to standing up, calling things out and demanding change. Um, but it, sh it shouldn't, something like this shouldn't have to fall on the shoulders of someone so young. Kate, you were recently interviewed by Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins for the independent review into parliamentary workplaces, which was called in response in part to the Brittany Higgins allegations as well as to other allegations. Do you believe that that review is capable of bringing about change in the culture in Parliament? I um, I got such confidence from my discussions with Kate Jenkins and the team that she has working on the independent panel that I think they were asking all the right questions. I think they're looking at all the right areas. And I'm really optimistic about the quality of the report and the recommendations that they'll put forward to change the culture of Parliament House. But um, in, in terms of do I think this is going to lead to change, I think there's one really simple reality, and that is if the government or any government really wants to bring about change and ensure that Parliament House is a more equal place, they will adopt some sort of structure to ensure greater representation of women um, within their party and within the parliament. So we can have as many recommendations as we like. We can have as many inquiries. But if, in this case, the government is serious and wants to bring about change, then they need to find a mechanism, targets, quotas, whatever they want to call it, and actually bring about change and have more women in the parliament. And if, they, if they're not going to do that, then I just don't believe that um, they're taking this seriously because we know that is the most effective way to bring about cultural change is actually bring about gender equality in the representation in the building. Um, so I'm optimistic, but I'm also um, waiting to see whether the government is all talk. Kate, thank you so much for talking to me today. The word timely doesn't begin to describe your book. Um, it's a very, very important book for all of us to talk about and to be considering at this time. I wish you all the very best with promoting it. And thank you so much for appearing on Books, Books, Books. Well, thank you so much for reading it and for talking to me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.